Well, it is a delight to be here again with you this morning. If you are new here or a first-time visitor, we are currently walking through the book of John. We are letting Jesus Christ answer the question that John's really focused on in his account. Who is Jesus? By hearing Jesus say in eight different sections, I am. And in those declarations, he tells us a little bit about himself and why he came. If you've been here for the whole series, we find ourselves at the third of the I Am statements where Jesus declares, I am the light. And if you've been paying careful attention, you may find yourself confused slightly this morning. Um, Because this week we find ourselves both at the beginning of chapter 8... Um, And then at the end, or at the beginning of chapter 9. And last week we found ourselves at the end of chapter 8. And that doesn't follow linear order and doesn't seem to make sense. Well, rest assured we have an answer for why we're walking through the text this way. And that is, is this is the outline Pastor Tony gave me before he left for sabbatical. Um, No, but really um, there is a, a reason for this, and what happens in um, John's account is Jesus makes a declaration at the beginning of John chapter eight: "I am the light of the world." The Jewish people around him engage him, and they start to have a discussion with him that leads to what we talked about last week. And so, in the middle of having this discussion, Jesus declares, "I before Abraham was, I am." And he has to address that and address these things with the people, which we did last week. And then as soon as that is over, he picks back up this theme of being the light of the world. We see an example of it played out, and Jesus tells us what he meant. And so I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to John chapter 8 and chapter 9. We'll be reading sections from both. You can also um, get out the insert that was given to you in... um, your uh, bulletins, and the text will be there as well. But before we go to God's Word, let us go to God Himself in prayer and ask for His help in understanding um, His Scriptures. So would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, this is the day that You have made. Help us to rejoice and to be glad in it. What a beautiful thing it is when we can come together Read your word together. Hear your word unfolded together. Lord, give us the sight and the ability to see your truths today. Give us the ability to hear your message. Give us the hearts to receive your message. Lord, as John has laid out for us in his gospel, you declare to be the light of the world. Help us to see what that means and help us to to take that and apply that into our lives and use it to be a blessing to others. But above all else, may these things be done for your glory and for your honor. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our mediator between you and Almighty God and us, your people. Amen. This is the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John, found in chapter 8. I'll read verse 12, and then we're going to flip forward to chapter 9, where I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but will have the light of life. And in chapter 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. This ends the reading of God's word. May he place these truths upon all of our hearts and bless the reading and hearing of it. Well, to fully appreciate our text this week, we need to think about several different things. We first need to think about the concept of light from a biblical perspective. You see, light has many meanings in the Bible, and depending on where we are in the text, can be applied in a different way. We also need to see how light contrasts with darkness. The two are often um, right next to each other. You usually don't have one without the other. We need to find out why that's the case and why that is important. We will actually see this very clearly in the story that John gives us in chapter 9 because we're going to tie light to blindness and light and blindness and darkness are all very related in a way that will become clear momentarily. And then finally, we will see that Jesus himself is that light, is that good light, is the light that shines through the darkness and gives sight to, its, to his people. So let us begin by, at least for a moment, thinking about this concept of light and darkness. The text tells us in verse 12 of chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in verse 5 of chapter 9, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what do those things mean? Well, we can go to the very beginning of Scripture to start to understand this. The Bible actually begins and ends with a study of light. We're told the very first words of Scripture that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we read, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. So from the outset of Scripture, we see a distinction being made that light is good and that darkness is something else. Light will eventually come to almost always represent good in the Bible. Uh, we will see this pattern continue through Scripture, but it does have other meanings as well. And let's look at those um, at least just for a moment. If instead of the beginning you want to go to the end of Scripture, one of the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, we're given a description of the new heavens and the new earth. They are described as a brilliant light. Verses uh, 9 through 11 says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then just a little further down to verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and it Its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no need of night there. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here, at the end of Scripture, light represents God's very presence. It represents God and His glory and His majesty and His splendor. And that light shines so greatly that there's no need of sun, moon, stars. There is no external source necessary for God Himself is the light of the new heavens and the new earth. But light, if you look in other places, can also represent joy, blessing, and life itself. In contrast to sorrow, adversity, and death. Psalm 97.11 says, Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. At an early time in the scripture, it, it really comes to signify God's favor. We see in Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or Isaiah 9, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. We could even turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and hear these words. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. From here and many, many other places in Scripture, we see a contrast between light and darkness as metaphors for good and evil. Light is seen as good and darkness is seen as evil. And this is so apparent in the Bible, it's picked up today in popular media. Um, Star Wars speaks of the light side and the dark side. Um, You can look at classic movies, movies like The Lion King. Um, There have been many studies done about film and um, color used in film. And if you watch carefully, you can pick up on um, points that they're trying to make for you. In that, Mufasa, the good lion, the, the king, if you will, he is represented brightly with brilliant colors. He's a, a, he's a, a bright yellow in um, the story. His brother Scar is the evil lion and is represented um, with dark colors, a dark deep brown. And his henchmen are hyenas which are gray, very bland color wise. And when Mufasa is killed um, and his brother takes over, the land is plunged into darkness. The world itself becomes gray and bland to represent um, evil. 
Um, I recently watched a new Disney movie, and this theme has continued. Um, I watched the movie Moana um, this past week, and it's a very um, enjoyable film. And I won't spoil anything for you, but when at first everything is so light and so happy, and there's songs, and there's color, and everything is great, and then something bad happens, and darkness comes, and things get boring and drab and gray once again, or black um, in the context of the story to represent a bad thing has happened. And it's, it's interesting to me that, that media picks up on this, and it's even more interesting that what they're what they're saying comes from the Bible. Now, none of them would ever admit that, and they would probably stop doing it if they did realize that they were promoting biblical um, truth. But the, the concept is seen today that light represents good and darkness represents bad. But darkness can have other meanings as well. It doesn't always just represent evil. Um, it can represent fear or the unknown. There's a lot of people today, possibly some of you, who suffer from a condition known as nyctophobia or scotophobia, which, if my source is right, and it was Lucy from the Peanuts movies, um, tells me that it's the technical term for being afraid of the dark. Now, why do some of us have a fear of the dark? Why are we afraid when the lights go out? Well, for me, anyway, um, personally, it's not even really a fear of the dark. I love night. I love the night sky. I love getting away um, from the distractions of the world and being able to see that which is around me. But at the same time, what I don't like is not being able to see, not knowing what's out there, having this fear in the back of my mind that something is there and it is not good and it is going to harm me or hurt me or cause me grief. Darkness veils the world around us. It makes things difficult to find. At the same time, it serves as a mystery. We find ourselves letting our minds wander. What is out there? Shapes twist and turn. What was once something innocent now becomes something dreadful. And fear easily steps in and says, you are right in that instance. One of the times in my life that this was most realized, I was on a hunting trip um, early October back in Mississippi. And back then it was getting dark about 6.15 and I was dropped off at my stand by my brother and he went several miles up the road and um, there I sat with my bow, a quiver full of arrows, I think I had five, and a two-and-a-half-inch pocket knife. And I was hunting for deer, and um, as luck would have it, um, there were no deer that wanted to come within range. I saw a lot of deer. They sat out there about 80 yards that afternoon, which is well beyond bow range, um, at least for me. And so I was empty-handed, and I watched the clock tick away, and it became 6.15, it became 6.30, which is past the legal time to hunt, and there I sat. 6.30 became 6.45, and 6.45 became 7, and now I'm alone in the dark. See, my brother had killed a deer, and he never really was worried about the people he was hunting with. He wanted to take care of his job first, and so I sat waiting. It was too far a walk to walk back to camp in the dark, um, and so my mind wandered. What are those things that are making those noises in the woods? Is that a deer? Is it a rabbit? Is it a bear? I don't think there's bears in Mississippi, but it could be. 
This could be the first recorded case of one being in Choctaw County. It could be a new discovery. Maybe they'll name it after me. And you start worrying about those things. You start doing that to yourself. You start finding reasons to be more afraid than you really should be. I learned something very important about darkness that day, though. Sometimes darkness can be your friend. Sometimes darkness can keep you from knowing what's there, and that's a good thing. For as seven o'clock appeared and I found myself sitting and waiting, I heard footsteps. Now, my, my brother was in a vehicle. He wouldn't be walking. And I started wondering, well, what is that? What's coming? I'd already decided there was a bear, and so I was worried. And then um, along this road that was maybe 20 yards from me, I um, saw what in Mississippi we call a bobcat, or a distant cousin for you to the mountain lion. It's a small animal, smallish, 30, 40 pounds, typically eat small prey. But in that instance, I knew they would eat human if they had to, and I was convinced that they would do so. And I found myself utterly terrified. I couldn't see my bow sights. My knife was too small. Why didn't I bring a light? And I froze. All I could do was freeze and sit in the darkness and realize that the bobcat had far better night vision than I did, and I was worried, and it wasn't. And it walked off. It walked away. It gave me not a second-passing glance. But I was afraid. You know, darkness can sometimes be a good thing. Um, in the context of our text today, Jesus is, is teaching during the Festival of Tabernacles, which celebrated the end of the harvest, and it would remind the Jewish people about Moses and the desert wanderings. God came to Moses through a burning bush. God spoke to Moses with a brilliant light. Before Moses stood this bush that wasn't being consumed and God's voice came out of it and it set him apart and it called him and it equipped him and sent him on a task at hand to release his people from the Egyptians. The Israelites would then be guided by Moses and altogether would be guided by a pillar of light. They didn't know the way. Darkness for them represented um, confusion maybe. For where do you go when you're out in the desert? Which way do you turn? There's not really many markers. There's not really uh, a really good way to tell, well, here I turn or there I go this way. They trusted God's presence in the smoke by day and the fire by night. And so they, especially the Jewish people, think when they think of light, they often think of God himself. And if that's the case, then many times they also think of darkness as the absence of God or another aspect of God, which is God's judgment. You know, Jonah in the belly of the fish cried out to God in the darkness, saying that he was like in Sheol itself. He cried out from a dark place, Lord, save me. Send your light of truth. I mentioned, if you were here last week, that um, in the biblical times, many Jewish uh, people had a fear of the water. They were afraid of the oceans because they couldn't explore them as we do now. Think about it. If all you could know about water was how deep you could swim, you wouldn't know a lot about water. In fact, the ocean still to this day is the last great un. Um, 
undiscovered areas. There's parts of the ocean that we have no idea what they are like. And we've been to the moon. There is uncertainty with water. And this has fed the fear to the Jewish people to the point that some of them declared that the water was the location of the underworld or where Satan and his demons resided. They believed that this is where his world or realm was. This is also why in the text when Jesus cast out the demons from the man who um, had them and put them in the pigs, the pigs and Jesus kind of came to an agreement and sent them into the water, into the deep darkness kind of feeding um, that thought that they had. Right before Jesus' death, the world became dark. God's judgment was to be on His Son. Here, darkness represents punishment. It looked like Satan had won the victory. Jesus had died. Darkness seems to confirm Satan's power, or at least the power he thought he had. Light and darkness can have many meanings in Scripture. And we've touched on just a few of them. And they can all be true in their given context. But in our context, I believe that light has at least one more meaning. One of understanding. One of truth. Let us now turn to chapter 9. And we're particularly going to look at verses 6 and 7. To see this played out with an example of blindness. And this is one of those beautiful places in Scripture where we have Jesus give a declaration, give an explanation of something. I am the light of the world. Those who trust in me will not walk in darkness. And then you can imagine they wonder, well, what does that look like, Jesus? So we get an example of that here. Here's a man born blind. Here's a man who does not have his sight. This is what it looks like to not walk in darkness. The text does tell us some interesting things. It says that he was born blind. If you look at verses, um, if you go back, um, verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. To a Jewish person, adulthood would uh, be reached somewhere around 20 years old. So we know that this was a man of somewhere around 20 or older. We know that he's had this condition his whole life. He has been forced to live with blindness. Now, in today's time, we know how difficult it can be to not have um, perfect eyesight. And for those of you that have it, boy, it's a blessing. I do not. And for many of us, that's not the case. In fact, I am classified legally blind. I can't drive without corrective lenses. I have 2,400 in my left eye and 2,200 in my right eye. I can't read the big E on the eye chart I do have it memorized, though, um, from my times that I have gone. And boy, is it hard. When I wake up in the morning, the very first thing that I do is reach for my glasses so I can see the floor to know where to go. Imagine, though, being back in this time where there were no eye doctors or glasses or solid roads, or sidewalks, or road signs. Imagine how dangerous it would be to be someone blind or with poor eyesight during the time of the Bible. And imagine year after year after year having to endure this. This would be hard, not just for him, but for his family. And the Jewish 
um, uh, the disciples, they make an assumption. Well, of course, Jesus, either he created or, or sinned or his parents sinned. That's why he's blind. You're punishing them. You're punishing them or punishing him for his blindness. That's, that's, there's a reason, right? Something had to have happened. This is a travesty. Why could he be blind other than for punishment? You see, in most societies, it was often considered a punishment by the gods. If the gods gave you a deformity, a deficiency, or a defect as society saw it, it was because you have done something bad or your ancestors had done so. And the Jewish people would hold similar beliefs because it was so pervasive in the culture. But Jesus is very quick here to point out that that's not the case at all. Jesus says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus is making it very clear here that this man was born blind for his own glory. Now, grant me a moment of an aside, because if you hear nothing else this morning, this is worth hearing. We often wonder why we are the way that we are. We wonder why we are born legally blind, why we weren't taller, why we weren't stronger, why our hair just seems to keep falling, why our knees hurt when we walk, why um, all of these things, and we have a list. And we often go to that list and we complain, if you will, to God. It's as if in a character creation in a video game, we say, God, if you really would have bumped the bars just a little bit, I'm 5'10", 6 would have been nice. You know, I'm, I'm okay on strength, but boy, you could have, one or two notches would have been grand, you know, and we could have, we could have affected that um, running ability and our ability to breathe while running. And we just, we start doing that to God. We start telling God, God, you made a mistake. You messed up. You did something wrong because look at me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart here. And we sometimes think about it as punishment. We get that in our heads too. God, you're doing something to me. I must deserve this. I have um, hurt you or offended you or affected you in some way. And that's, that's what it is. That's why I am the way that I am. And yet Jesus makes a, a very interesting point here. This man was created for a purpose and that purpose was his glory don't fall into the trap of believing what you think is a mechanical defect. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that that wasn't for a purpose, that God made a mistake, that that cannot glorify God, that that cannot magnify his name, that that cannot display an aspect of who he is. All throughout scripture, God uses people that we would not choose. He uses places that we would not choose. He uses animals even. I love the story of Balaam and his donkey. Balaam refuses to see God's presence, so God starts talking to him through his donkey. And even events, the the battle at Jericho is remarkable at how absurd it is. All of those things in scripture, and you mean to tell me the, the fact that our backs hurt when we get up can't be for God's glory? You're not an accident. You were created the way that you are with the things that you have and what you deem as detractions or, or errors for his glory. And here, let me um, say this on top of that, and it was loving for him to do so. Because 
In this text, he continues with his disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, why can't you work at night? Remembering that we're not in our context now, but in the Jewish context. Because it's dark. Candles would be expensive and dangerous, and they don't put off a lot of light. It wasn't feasible for them to work night shifts as we do in our society today. It's hard to work in the dark. In fact, there's an old saying, it's a favorite of mine, you've got to make hay while the sun is shining, which means you've got to work while you have the time and the ability to do so. There will come a time when it's not possible. And if you can't see in the dark... If you can't work in the dark, that would basically be the same thing as what? That's right, as if you were blind. Jesus is showing the disciples that blindness here is the same thing as ignorance. Truth brings with it understanding. Light illuminates and reveals truth. God's word is said to be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word brings sight to the spiritual blindness that the people face. And here is the beauty of this text. This man was blind, but Jesus heals him. The very end that we read in verse 7, and he comes back seeing. But he's not really who the text is about. The text is about the disciples who don't see what God is doing. Who don't see the purpose for which God created this man. Who don't see the plan that he's been laying out from the beginning. They're the ones who are blind. They're the ones who don't understand. They're the ones who don't see. And in fact, the, the scriptures tell us that they won't until he returned and came to them a second time. God's word brings sight. And this sends the Pharisees, um, what happens immediately after this text, it sends them the Pharisees into a rage. They um, go to this man and they try to get him to, con- to confess that he was never blind, that he was lying about it. He had to have been pretty good to lie about it for 20 years. Um, And when they can't do that, they go to his parents. Surely this isn't the man who was blind and now can see. And they're like, yep, that's, that's our son. And they can't get Jesus there. So they go a third way and they go, well, hmm. Jesus, how dare you do this on the Sabbath? How, how dare you perform this miracle on God's day? How dare you do something that on the day that we're told to rest? But I don't believe Jesus makes mistakes. I think even in that, there is truth for us. Because spiritual blindness can only be cured by contact with God. God has given us special graces to relate to Him as a people. Those graces, the Word, sacraments, and prayer. There's one time out of the week that we gather together and intentionally take part in these things. That's right, Sunday, the first day of the week. We took the Sabbath and moved it to Sunday in honor of our Lord's resurrection. We see this in the first century and we continue it today. This is the day that we come to be fed and the blind comes to be healed. When the people hear God's word, when they hear in song what he has done, when they listen to the prayers, when they watch us fellowship together, they are partaking in God's grace. Romans chapter 10 reminds us people cannot come to God unless He draws them. And He draws them through His Word. They cannot come to Him if they're not receiving that Word. 
the only way for them to go from being blind to having sight is to engage in God's word, which is most readily available to us now, today. Don't miss the importance of gathering together. I believe Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by performing this miracle on the Sabbath. I believe he was telling the Pharisees and the disciples and us that the only time that we can be healed of our blindness is when we are under his word, when we are fellowshipping together, when we are taking part of these graces. God wants his people to come to him. He wants them to hear his voice and respond. He wants them to see He wanted this so much. He knew that this was so important for us. He knew that this was necessary for us that he sent his son. He sent Jesus to be that light that shines through the darkness. Let us once again look at Jesus' statements in 8.12 and 9.5 to see that final point. Jesus is the light of the world and he declares it for us. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We have clearly laid out that there is a contrast between light and darkness. We have seen this through the example of spiritual blindness and physical blindness. But we must not stop there. We have to go to the conclusion, which is Jesus is that light. Jesus is the one who gives sight to the blind. John has actually been preparing us for this. He didn't want this to come as a surprise. And if you flip to chapter 1 of John's account, you have probably one of the greatest declarations of Jesus' deity in all of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to see that Jesus is that light, that Jesus is that truth, that he came to bring light to the darkness. He came to bring understanding to a lost world. Last week we laid out that Jesus is God. He has the authority to do this. He is truth. His life is an example. He shines in the darkness. He did this by being obedient to every word that his father commanded of him. 
We don't have to walk around groping in the dark. We don't have to wonder and worry about what is out there. We're told if we follow him, if we are his disciples, if we trust in him by faith, then we walk in light just as he walks in light. And this is why he performs the miracle that he does. It's not in the saliva that the man's cured. That's kind of gross and we tend not to want to think about it. It's not in the mud that he makes on the ground. It's not in the pool that he washes in. It's in the man trusting Jesus. Jesus said, go wash. And what did the man do? He went and then came back seeing. It is in faith upon Jesus that sight is given to the blind. And I think there are two places in Scripture that we need to see that display this, display the truth about Jesus being the light. And the first is if we go back to Moses in the Old Testament. Moses goes upon a mountain to commune with God and he says, God, oh, could I see your presence? Oh, could I see you, God? Oh, could I see a glimpse of who you are and God says you can't Moses you can't see me and live my presence is too much my glory is too great you see me and you will die and he pleads God please and so he hides him behind a rock and he catches a glimpse through a crack in the rock I'm talking just barely enough to say that he saw him and then my favorite part what happens next Moses goes back down the mountain to the people And as he goes down, God's glory is shining upon his face. And his glory from coming in contact with God is so great that the people are terrified and they say, cover it up. We can't take it. Put a veil over your face. Cover your face. We can't stand God's presence. We are sinful people and he is not. But even greater than that, in Mark's gospel, we see this displayed fully or more fully. Tying himself once again to the Old Testament text, we read these words. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Mark shows us just for a moment what it looks like when the heavens are released, when Jesus stops holding back, when his glory is placed on display. And it is so brilliant, and it is so great, and it is so good that it shines brighter than anything that the disciples have ever seen, that they're so terrified. They're talking about making tents for essentially ghosts, and, and they don't know what they're saying, and it tells us that they don't because they're so confused because God's presence is before them. Old Testament, a glimpse of his glory was too much for us to behold. New Testament, the disciples who had been following Jesus, who had been walking with Jesus, who had been hearing the stories and seeing the miracles and had been being prepared for this moment, cannot take it, cannot take God's glory. 
And then the Father speaks over all of them and says, Listen to my Son. He is the light of the world. Jesus says, Come to me. I will give you rest. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do these things, to obey the Father by coming to the Son. Jesus is the light of the world. And this is great news. And... If you do know this, if you find yourself trusting in this, and if this is your story, and this is familiar to you, then be encouraged, my friends. We're not lost. We're not accidents. We're not made, we've not been made with mistakes. We're not going about without a purpose. We are children of the light, just as our brother Christ is the light. We walk in truth because he purchased truth for us. The price has been paid. We can see. Now, if that's not you, and you're in the darkness, and as I was on that early October night, terrified, because you don't know, You don't know what is out there. You don't know what the truth is. You don't know what's going to happen. And you hear God saying that my presence brings terror with it because it is real and it is true and it is judgment. My darkness is the punishment for sin. And come to the light. Come to Christ, the one who says, I am the light. Come and rest. Come and be filled. Come and receive living water. Come to the one who before Abraham was. He says, I am. Come to Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to hear your word, to read your word, to listen to your word. At the same time, I pray that this is a weight over the heads of those who do not trust in you, is a burden for those who are walking in the darkness. And I pray that through our lives, through our obedience, through our surrendering to you, we may shine as light in the darkness. We may draw them to yourself. We may pull them into your word. We may give them the opportunity to hear and to receive that which has been given to us. You shine as a light in the darkness. You shine as a beacon on a hill. You offer truth to those who seek understanding. Give that to us this day, we pray. Open our eyes, our minds, our ears, our hearts. Make us soft so that we can receive that which you have proclaimed to us. Do it in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator, the one who speaks on our behalf as the true light of the world. For he did what we could not do, that we may receive that which we do not deserve, and that is life. We ask all of this in his name, we pray. Amen.